Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Well, uh, a very warm welcome uh, to all of you who have, who have dialed in uh, thus far to this briefing call uh, to discuss the two remaining candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party and ultimately uh, the Prime Ministership. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, two seasoned UK participants um, and, and perennial watchers, uh, our UK politics and practice um, director, um, Alex Dawson, uh, who, who's, who's um, GC's UK country director, and, and Lila Housen-Smith, who's, who's a UK director. Um, just to note throughout this call, uh, we'll be taking uh, questions by the, the chat feature, uh, and hopefully towards the end, we'll be able to get to um, some of those uh, and ask them to, to um, the two respective people on, on, on the call. Um, but turning to you first, Alex, uh, you, you've worked on Theresa May's leadership campaign uh, in 2016, and I appreciate that it didn't go uh, to the membership uh, process, but you nonetheless have, have been involved in, in that uh, before, before going into number 10 with her. Can you set out the result that we saw last night uh, and also the process henceforth uh, to the election uh, that we're likely to see you know, in, in, the, in the early uh, week of, of September? Well, fundamentally, what we saw last night was that Penny Mordaunt um, was beaten to the line, having been in second place throughout uh, the, the the balloting of Tory MPs. She was beaten into second place by Liz Truss um, by you know, a matter of a handful of votes. And so it's therefore Rishi Sunak, who has about 38% um, support in the, uh, uh, in the Tory parliamentary party, um, followed by... Liz Trust's got about 32.5%, if memory serves correctly. Uh, and then what happens now is that these two names go forward to a ballot of the Conservative Party's membership. Now, that uh, size of the membership in 2019, the last time it was counted effectively for um, the Tory party, uh, for the last leadership campaign, is about 160,000 voters. Uh, they are, I think the average age is roughly about 55, two-thirds of them are men. Um, by by sort of uh, some accounts. Uh, and we will start to see ballots drop next week uh, with the final ballots landing on the 5th of August. And from there on in, Tory party members have about a month or so to make up their mind. So votes have to be in on the 2nd of September. Uh, the result declared on September the 5th, the new prime minister, the winner of the contest, uh, taking office on the 6th of September. Uh, there'll be about 12 hustings that we'll see in person between uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust for Conservative Party members that will be filmed though. Uh, we'll also see some virtual hustings and actually we're due for another couple of uh, leaders debates between the two of them on BBC and Sky over the course of the next 10 days or so. So that's kind of the process uh, as it stands, but clearly there'll be a lot of politics in between there and then. And can you give us um, a bit of of a flavour with respect to the disposition of, of the 160 or so thousand Conservative members, you know, what are they ultimately looking for in a new leader? You know, the current polling suggests that Rishi Sunak is trailing Liz Trust by about 19 points or so. Um, is that going to be a real issue for him, given that, as you say, the postal ballots are going to be dropping on doormats uh, from next week, and certainly by the first week of August, they'll all be out? Well, um, just in respect to that, something that, uh, you know, the Rishi Sunak campaign, which has acknowledged that he is probably behind in the membership and he needs to do some work to reverse that, uh, something that they hold um, 
close, uh, potentially is the fact that people would be able to change their ballots throughout the course of the campaign. So if you vote you know, for Liz Trust on a postal ballot, uh, actually you can kind of rescind that with a with an online vote later. Um, however, that being said, I mean, a golden rule of politics is that you want to get your vote out early because once people voted, they tend to not think about it, even with highly um, engaged electorates like the membership of the Conservative Party. Um, I think in terms of where the member, where the Tory party is in the country, uh, in addition to what I said earlier about their sort of demographics and their age, uh, the opinion polling suggests that they voted Brexit by about 80-20. Uh, so, and and the, the problem for Rishi Sunak is that he holds a commanding lead amongst uh, Conservative members who are Remainers, uh, but he uh, is at a significant disadvantage amongst Conservative members who are Leavers. It doesn't take a great deal of skill with maths to work out that that might be a problem for him. Um, I would also say, though, that, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a, the potential for kind of changeability within the membership. I think they will be kind of, looking to see how well the candidates deal with pressure. Uh, and obviously there will be external events that may well sort of change people's minds and opinions as we go. Um, in terms of the sort of the, the broader qualities, I think that they're looking for a leader, they're looking for strong leadership. They're looking for sort of an, an integrity uh, in, in a leadership. Um, they're sort of, in a strange way, less worried about electability uh, than might have been the case in sort of 2019, when, you know, if you screw up, and I should apologise for that use of French there, um, if you mess up an election campaign, you end up with Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, no matter how much they dislike him, doesn't strike the same level of fear into Conservative members' hearts. Um, and they would rather actually a government get about doing some solidly Tory things, like cutting taxes, uh, rather than sort of trimming to the centre, which is arguably what they worry about war, what they worry has been the sort of the Johnson May Cameron legacy uh, over the course of the last 12 years. Uh, so that's kind of where, where, where the thinking currently is, but, but as I say, you know, relatively little is actually known about the people who are going to be deciding who the next prime minister is. Yeah, I, mean, I was struck by, by polling over the last few days from YouGov. It's quite in depth. It, it provides an overview of the top priorities of the conservative party members. And, and like you just alluded to there, it seems that a very small percentage of them, I think it was about uh, 5%, were interested in this issue of electability. Actually, other issues were far more important to them. And, and clearly, that's a massive difference to the Conservative MPs, uh, for whom the leader being electable is a huge deal, given that their jobs depend yeah. on it. So do you really think that the the membership of the Conservative Party is not all too interested in electability at the general public level. Obviously, they represent 0.2% of the entire mm. electorate. But do you think they're going to disregard that factor uh, to the extent they seem to suggest through polling? I, I suppose it's kind of, you know, one person's electability is another person's sort of sound Tory government. Um, and I would I would always kind of caution you know, place a little bit of caution around um, uh, abstract principles kind of as applied to, uh, you know, as applied to a weighting or a ranking. I think it's potentially quite, I think you, I think you, you get into a question of stated preferences rather than what the revealed preferences are. I mean, uh, if you are also kind of, and I suppose it's kind of going back slightly on kind of the previous discussion, but 
you know, people around Rishi Sunak would point out that he has already closed the gap by a certain number of points on Liz Truss. Um, he would argue probably that there's other polling which suggests that the Tory membership don't know that Liz Truss backed Remain, that she used to be a Liberal Democrat, whereas Rishi Sunak has been a Tory for as, uh, you know, long as the day is old, um, and also has uh, voted leave in 2016. So I think there's kind of a certain piece of work to do about sort of education, educating kind of the membership about some of the facts of the race. And I think that is going to be the the challenge is whether he can get off this current um, prism of the race being viewed as, you know, Rishi's attacks, hiking kind of Osbornite against Liz Truss, who is a Thatcherite sort of freedom fighter for lower With taxes. respect to his ability to be able to do that, you know, we have seen already some of the newspapers in the UK, the Times, um, they've now their colours the mask and, and they're going to back Rishi Sunak. But every other right-leaning publication in the UK, you know, the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, um, the, the uh, Express, you know, they're very likely to support Truss and some of them already have is he really going to have an outlet to actually get his views across you know to get that view across with respect to Liz Truss's former sort of remain supporting um position or actually is he going to be wholly reliant on the other methods to get the message across to members and and I think you know it's important to consider that the 160 or so thousand conservative members they are highly likely to read a newspaper and equally, it's probable that the newspaper they're going to be reading is either the Daily Mail or the Sun. Uh, yeah, or the Telegraph. Um, I would say that the... Uh, so, look, I mean, he will have backers and cheerleaders, you know, within these sort of institutions, within these kind of media organs. Uh, what I would say is that, obviously, direct-to-consumer marketing is as important in politics as it is in uh, lots of other forms of uh, sales uh, effectively and so social media will be important also sites like conservative home will be very important in terms of um, how you kind of communicate a message through to uh, kind of the committed membership base of the party uh, and, and also remember kind of uh, you know the, the the debates on the BBC in particular will be viewed by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, and obviously not all of them are going to be conservative members, but they are going to know conservative members. And there will be, you know, there is a, uh, you could see how something said in those debates could cut through uh, just as they do in sort of, you know, in kind of contests with larger electorates as well. And on that, you know, we're seeing at the moment the Conservative Party generally is trailing the Labour Party by quite a wide margin now. It's consistently um, double digits. Do you think, and we saw, for example, Liz Truss and Sunak were the ones who contended that the Sky debate ought to be pulled because they were ultimately uh, ripping chunks of flesh out of each other and they thought that wasn't particularly constructive in terms of the general public's perceptions. Do you think that they're going to be acting in a little bit more a reasonable way in those BBC and, and Sky News debates? Or do you think actually, you know, the prime ministership is on the line here? They both want the role. 
they're going to actually be prepared to invade against each other like they did last time. I think I think you will see, you know, more of the latter than they would kind of say that they would see now. I think you should remember that that kind of member, the, the Tory MP stage of the vote is particularly febrile and you're trying to kind of effectively bounce other people into voting in a certain way that, you know, might benefit you in future. Um, so I think it will be maybe slightly less intense than... We might have seen over the course of the last few weeks, but um, but you're still going to see criticism of how the Conservative Party has, you know, been in government for the last 12 years or so. Um, and I think that combined with a divided party combined, um, and I think this is underweighted in how people talk about the polling situation for the Conservative Party right now, combined with the very difficult economic circumstances that some people are finding themselves in. We have inflation running at 9.4%. A lot of that is in food. A lot of that is in fuel prices. Um, That is probably the biggest determinant of why the Conservative Party is starting to, well, is polling so poorly. And then that leads me on to to, to you, Lila, in terms of discussing the the policy differentials between the two, um, you know, their, their economic uh, domestic and, and foreign policy um, differences. There are clearly some very major differences between them on the issue of fiscal policy and, and tax cuts and the point at which those cuts uh, will occur. Can you unpack that difference for us? Um, and do you think that ultimately this is going to be the core area that defines the contest? Sure. So um, just to recap on where they've got to both on um, tax cuts. So Rishi Sunak has basically ruled out tax cuts in the short term. He suggested that he would like to move towards um, some tax cuts um, ahead of a general election, but has left the kind of detail, the substance of that um, up for debate. Liz Truss has been kind of very precise in terms of what she intends to do on tax cuts. So she's going to stop the corporation tax increase. Um, that was announced by Rishi Sunak when he was Chancellor and also reverse April's increase in national insurance contributions. And the combined cost of these policies is around 30 billion. So so kind of quite a significant um, difference in terms of how they're trying to uh, kind of think about balance of the books, but also in terms of the fiscal headroom this will or will not create. In terms of why this is becoming these the debate of um, the leadership contest. I think it's largely because it's a clear area of difference, but also because there is a continuing focus on the UK's fiscal position. And we saw this this morning with the new OBR forecast. So thinking about what the UK's debt burden is and also the cost of maintaining that debt around um, with in a situation where we have in potentially increased interest rates. And also... Um, because the cost of living debate is kind of the present debate um, for politicians in response to the electorate. You know, it, it, it's the main kind of story of the day if this leadership contest wasn't happening. And even, you know, while Boris Johnson was still in post, that was kind of the main thing that he was responding to day to day. So neither of the candidates can kind of get away from these issues. And frankly, their kind of tax and spend positions allow them to respond to how they would fundamentally deal with them. And I, we also have... I think quite a quite a material difference with respect to monetary policy, and I think that this has been quite underreported and, and underappreciated because Truss has ultimately suggested that she's going to be reviewing the entire mandate of the Bank of England. You know, not the remit letter that the Chancellor 
you know, conventionally sends to the, the Bank of England governor sort of once a year or so. But actually, the entire remit in terms of the aggressiveness with which they're going to be tackling inflation, which somewhat suggests that she thinks they ought to be increasing interest rates to get on top of it. Do you think that this could ultimately be used, particularly by uh, Sunak's camp, to cut through at the Conservative membership level, given that you know, there is a, clearly a relationship between higher interest rates and lower property prices and a vast majority of Conservative members own property? Yeah, so I think the interesting thing is that what underpins the kind of approach that um, I was describing previously on kind of trust's approach to tax and spend is this ideological conviction that more robust monetary policy is necessary to contend with inflation and that fiscal policy and ultimately her intentions around significantly reducing taxation don't need to be inflationary. And I think that's quite a big distinction, as you say. What I do think, though, is that the trust campaign have not yet been, are not yet crystal clear on how much they want to be making this point and using this to kind of underpin their arguments on tax and spend. I think there's a kind of uh, debate happening um, within her camp about whether there's actually kind of the tax cuts alone are enough and actually you don't need to um, explain the underpinning logic you need to know it and you know believe it um to for, for that to in, um, for that to work and that come up to come across and clearly it will be um an important component of the way in which she governs and as you say it will have implications for the way in which she sees um uh the bank of england mandate but they're not ne- necessarily yet seeing it as a kind of uh explanation or a key policy platform and i think if they're not proactively saying it that ability to use it i also think there's a probably a level of complexity here that they might not want to engage with at this stage in the debate that might change you know if there is if if, if the hustings and if the public debates end up just focusing on tax issues but in all likelihood they will focus on other domestic policy issues and therefore the the ability for sunak to really get into what um, Truss's ideological position on this logically means in terms of interest rates and therefore the cost for people that hold mortgages, I think is it, it would take quite a lot of debating to get there um, from both of them. And it is a kind of question of, of whether that's the clearest route for Sunak to undermine um, Truss. Yeah, and I suppose on, on the other areas of domestic policy, there seems to be Not really a huge delta uh, between the two, except perhaps this issue of uh, climate change and and their respective positions, and particularly Truss's position that we should be removing. She said the green levy as if it's just a single levy. But of course, there are multiple different levies that could be described as as green that both impact industry, but also um, energy bills directly. What do you think with respect to the differences on that? Uh, And do you ultimately think that this is going to be one of the defining areas of the campaign as well? So I think the the first thing to say is that they have got one fundamental similarity in that they've both committed to net zero by 2050. The difference is in how they think that the political emphasis on that is going to be delivered. So Sunak seems to be focusing far more on um, energy generation and secure and how that interacts with energy security on a lot, lot much longer time frame. Whereas trust seems to be focusing on the immediate impact on bills, as you say. So that's what's led to her suggesting that she would remove the green energy levy. 
I think the interesting thing about this is that ultimately neither of them are going to be able to get away from the question of how would you reduce energy bills? And even Trust's current response doesn't actually um, kind of get you away from the, the wider question, which is if you don't put those levies on energy bills, are you going to put them into general taxation and therefore opening up a much wider debate about the way our energy market in the UK is structured. And I think something that's really interesting that no one's kind of yet been talking about, talking about at least politically in these debates is that there was this review of energy market arrangements announced, um, what well, was announced a couple of months ago, but it's being taken forward, it's being consulted on now. And that poses much more fundamental questions about the way in which we price energy and how that might relate to how close you live to a wind farm, or it might relate to how it might relate to um, uh, this decision around whether you want to um, pay for green energy through general taxation or through um, VAT or, or green levies on your energy bills. And I think that's where the debate is ultimately going to go when whoever um, becomes prime minister has to take these decisions in practice. I think um, sort of similar to what I was saying before, that level of complexity isn't going to come out in the debate. But that's why I think we should be quite mindful of reading too much into these positions early on, because actually they're just areas of of emphasis where either sort of feels comfortable. Um, so I think I think that's roughly where we are on the on the net zero or, or energy debate. But do you think you know, so with respect to the sort of prospective policy of, of the two um, leaders, you know, assuming you know, Liz Truss becomes prime minister, for example, can we assume, therefore, given her approach in the in the leadership race, that the existing processes in Whitehall, for example, potentially extending the EU uh, the, or the UK now emissions trading scheme to additional sectors, uh, or uh, the proposal in Whitehall to create a new emissions trading scheme that would apply to transport specifically before the creation of, uh, of a new uh, emissions scheme that applies to multiple different sectors. Can we assume that Trust would be blocking those policies as, as Boris Johnson has done in government? But ultimately, it was Rishi Sunak who was pushing those policies. And therefore, as prime minister, he would probably still do so. Can we assume that that would be a very key differential in, in government? So I think these these issues would definitely be up in the air under under um, Liz Truss, who would want to consider this now in the round of the wider commitment that she's made around um, removing the green energy levy, which, as, as she describes, it applies to both businesses and households. So that would include the ETS. With um, Rishi Sunak, I think the wider question is, do, is he we've never kind of heard him or there's not been a clear signal of whether he might actually be more comfortable with moving um, some of these levies or um, uh, um, uh, tariffs on both industry and households onto um, onto general taxation. So it's kind of TBC on his position on that. What I would suggest to kind of corporates who are thinking about this is this is really an area that's going to be extremely ripe for, for lobbying or kind of advocacy from the first couple of weeks of the new prime minister taking taking a position. Because frankly, while they can both introduce cost of living packages that look a little bit more like what Sunak introduced before, the fundamental question is how do you reduce energy prices in the long term or at least increase variability so that you can tailor um, energy prices so that those affected by um, higher prices can, can um, pay slightly less. And I think that's going to be a really salient political question, whoever becomes leader. I think Truss's position on it is slightly clearer, but I think Sunak's is up in the air as well. 
And another issue of, of divergence uh, moving away from domestic policies is, is foreign policy. Um, and, and Truss is contending that she would publicly claim that the Chinese are committing acts of, of genocide, um, aping the, the US um, position, and in the past uh, has contended that, that Russia should return Crimea to Ukraine. And Sunak, on the other hand, has been far less bellicose and willing to pine on, on these sorts of issues. Do you think that, that Truss's position will worry Whitehall, but, but quite please um, Conservative members? I think it will please Conservative members. I also think it's actually, um, particularly her sort of attitude towards China, broadly reflects where the general public is on this as well, when they're actually kind of polled. It's obviously not a sort of super salient um, voter priority, but it is up there in terms of um, things where sort of, I I think she would find broad agreement between Conservative members and the and the public, and, and she knows that this is a good issue for her in terms of um, what being something that she's already known for, but also um, relatively yeah, popular with members and, and voters. I think the thing that we're going to see here from Trust is initially rhetoric. So we've already seen this little bit, her suggesting that um, actually we need to be very mindful of China's intentions towards Taiwan. We need to be much more sceptical about our trading relationship with China as well and kind of positioning um, that as a defining line with uh, Rishi Sunak, who has indicated that he does still welcome a trading relationship with China and particularly that he still um, agrees that there should be Chinese investment in non-strategic areas of the UK economy. Whereas as Liz trustees it, you know, these things should be both becoming contentious in the current circumstances. But where you'll see the real dividing line in policymaking and, and how they translate this is I think Sunak being very comfortable with the existing tools he has available via the National Security and Investment Act, which is basically an investment screening tool, and trust looking for um, mechanisms to go further. And I think that's what will worry Whitehall. So what are the measures that she can introduce to um, encourage even kind of multinational companies not to source from the Xinjiang region of China? What are the um, areas, ways in which she can change government procurement to ensure a Chinese business or a part Chinese business could never win a government contract? And those kind of measures, I think, are going to be both discussed in in parts of the debate this month, but also definitely kind of taken forward. Um, And it's an area where she feels she has knowledge, she feels she has the backing of the party, and actually she feels that there are kind of greater mechanisms available than what has currently been identified. And, and turning back to you, Alex, you know we've we've clearly seen uh, an expedited campaign at the Conservative MP level, and and Sunak and Truss have, have both secured you know the support of of multiple cabinet uh, ministers. And I thought it was it was somewhat telling, really, that Penny Mordaunt secured uh, the support of no um, existing cabinet ministers. And I thought that was one of the the main reasons why she failed to get through to the final two. But what can you tell us about the final um, two's respective? potential cabinets if, if they were to win? Uh, well, look, I suppose you know, we can go through some names, but I think there'll probably be two important considerations that they uh, want to consider. You want to have a balanced cabinet in terms of sort of opinions across the party, because that provides you with a kind of a, effectively a safety mechanism and a valve to um, handle dissent effectively. So you'll be looking at a kind of a relatively balanced on Brexit leave issues um, and similarly in terms of kind of across the One Nation caucus, uh, you'll also want to work out what you do with the defeated uh, candidates in the leadership race. 
Um, I think there are probably two people uh, who are likely to be in the cabinet come what may, um, following on from the leadership election. One is Kemi Badenoch. Um, I think she's probably in the sort of the poll position. Uh, and I think you would offer something to Tom Tugendhat um, as a kind of a sort of a, you know, to the victor, the spoils uh, kind of thing. You can sort of be magnanimous and you bring in sort of new youngish talent from across the across the party. However, you also want to make sure that the cabinet is backed with your allies. And if you're Liz Truss, you'll be looking at people like Simon Clark, Kwasi Kwarteng, who are sort of, you know, ideological sort of fellows and, you know, relatively experienced. And you could see them kind of going into um, relatively sort of senior roles in the cabinet. You'd also, if you're Liz Truss, think about uh, Therese Coffey, for instance, as well, who's kind of considered to have had a good run at DWP uh, and like Liz Truss was a kind of a loyalist to Boris Johnson, even though sort of, um, even when things were going particularly badly wrong for him. Uh, when it comes to Rishi Sunak, uh, again, you know, there'll be a strong kind of uh, desire to get someone like Kimmy Badenoch in, Tom Tugendhat, but also Oliver Dowden, who resigned as um, chairman of the Conservative Party shortly after uh, the um, uh, Tiverton and Honiton and Wakefield by-elections um, in protest against Johnson's leadership effectively, uh, but also Mel Stride, who um, had a brief stint in cabinet under Theresa May, but has been running the numbers for the Rishi Sunak campaign. Uh, and people again like Steve Barclay, uh, who effectively was an ally of Rishi Sunak at the Treasury uh, and who would probably have a good... Um, uh, a, a good berth in any uh, around the top table uh, under a Sunak administration. And on the uh, advisory side, you know, who, who do you think might be brought in as, as chief of staff and uh, director of comms, for example? Um, so you have on, well, I mean, we can sort of all play bingo on this. I mean, kind of the current chief of staff for Rishi Sunak is a guy called Liam Booth-Smith. Uh, his kind of current sort of director of comms is Narissa Chesterfield. I would say that um, the jump up to uh, doing sort of departmental comms and these kind of departmental sort of roles up into number 10 is quite a big step. Um, similarly, you have Ruth Porter, who's a very well-respected individual, um, sort of tipped potentially for the top uh, with Liz Truss. Sophie Jarvis, a current chief of staff for Liz Truss. Um, uh, but but I think you know we are going to have to see, and I'm sure the leadership campaigns would be quite a good uh, way of finding sort of the future sort of staffing of the um, uh, of those administrations. I mean, just the, the final point on that is we can obviously all sort of focus on uh, staff and spads, and they are kind of relevant and important in a sort of in a functional way. But obviously, the most important things are the dynamics in government, the facts on the ground with the economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, the identities of the, of the cabinet ministers, uh, as well as obviously the identity and the sort of the thinking behind um, the, the, the prime minister themselves. And we, we've got some time for some questions that have been coming in over the last half hour or so. Do you think, uh, either of you, that there is a, a pathway to, a, to an early general election that's going to stem from all of this? 
So we've repealed the Fixed Terms Parliaments Act. So the only way to really get to a general election is for um, the uh, for the for um, the government to call one in themselves. And I I don't see that happening. I think it would be a huge risk for whoever becomes new leader. And both have indicated that they don't have appetite for it, particularly when we were expecting a general election in eighteen months. Anyway, I think they will be using all the time available to them to deliver. Um, and as for a, as for a kind of confidence vote, which is not doesn't have the same effect as it did before, but but clearly can happen. I think that even that is extremely unlikely, uh, given that even Boris Johnson managed to see off a confidence vote earlier this week, despite being kicked off, kicked out by his party. Obviously, we say this, the countervailing examples are the 2016 and 2019 leadership elections where you had a change of prime minister halfway through a term. And then shortly after you had a general election. I mean, I'd argue that both of those are in slightly different categories. 2017 election was done to try out done early on in a parliament to boost a majority from six to 60 it instead went from six to minus 16 um having been there it wasn't a very pleasant experience but you know you win some you lose some um uh, and then the 2019 election uh was to take um effectively a parliament that had absolutely no kind of uh no coherence no consensus for what the prime minister had negotiated in terms of the uh, the withdrawal uh, agreement with the EU over Article 50. Um, and he effectively tried to seek a mandate to do that, which he was then successful with. You're a new prime minister walking in the door on the 6th of September. The Tory party still does have a 75 seat majority. You're going to be having an election in probably about 18 months time. Uh, and inflation is a, you know, nine, 10 points. Uh, which incidentally is kind of had an inverse correlation with um, your party's leadership uh, ratings and your opinion poll ratings, takes a brave person in that circumstance to pull the pin and say, right, guys, you know, strap in, we're going for an election, particularly as well before you have boundary changes done, which are likely to give the Conservatives maybe another sort of five, ten seats because we won't be using census data from 2001 but we'll be using more up-to-date data that... From 2010. <laughs> yeah, from 2010. Uh, in, in, in a few years' time, we'll be from 2021, hopefully quicker than, uh, than we've had it in the past. And somebody is asking, uh, can they become a Conservative Party member um, today uh, and then vote in the Condors? I think, I think no. I think you've got to have been a member uh, by, by 1st of June. The, 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 the Three turbul- months, isn't it? Yeah. Typically. Three months. Turbulence in British politics is the greatest uh, argument to become a member of a political party because you will have a chance of picking either the next prime minister or the next but one prime minister. Uh, so. And then and another uh, and, and final question here is on uh, the particular characteristics of, of, of the respective um, contenders. You know, Liz Truss is often regarded as somebody who's a little bit wooden. Um, Sunak is regarded perhaps as a somewhat technocratic and obviously, Sunak is is incredibly uh, financially uh, wealthy, uh, stemming from his his wife's um, fortune. Do you think that these factors are going to be of any sort of material relevance in the contest? Um, I mean, I think it probably gets into what we were discussing a little bit about electability. Um, uh, you know, I have family members who like to send me the video of Liz Truss giving a speech at party conference a few years ago, which sounds incredibly impassioned about dairy products and fruit and vegetable. Um, so, you know, I think it can have a sort of a knock on consequence, but but also, the you know, the, 
the electorate uh, that we're talking about has kind of priced these in um, and it will be, you know, perceptions of electability as far as that is relevant. Uh, most people think that actually sort of how the government um, acts, what it does on policy is probably more important than, you know, the woodenness or not of, um, uh, or, you know, of the leader. Undoubtedly, though, both campaigns will be trying to find ways of making the point that, you know, Rishi Sunak is a, uh, you know, part of a billionaire family. Uh, Liz Truss has um, uh, had some sort of, uh, has some sort of slightly eccentric TV appearances, including one at Lib Dem conference um, uh, over the Where course of last the abolition years. of the monarchy, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> it could be an interesting first meeting with the Queen. <laughs> Well, I mean, on that note, thanks very much, everyone, for, for joining uh, the call. I'm sure we'll be hosting another one uh, before the result of the race comes through in early uh, September. Uh, but please do uh, get in touch if, if you think we can advise on, on any of the related issues. Thank you.